Great. Well, we continue today with introducing the book of Acts. Um, just the start of what's going to be an extended series, and we've called the series, You Will Be My Witnesses. Just a quick summary. Uh, last week, we explained, or we saw that the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts are really two parts of one story. Luke made it clear in his first verse uh, in the book of Acts that what he, what he wrote about in the Gospel was what Jesus began to do and to teach. In other words, Acts is a continuation of what Jesus continued to do in the book of Acts. So it's a, con- it's a continuation of the story in Luke. And we can refer to the Acts as the Acts of the um, Apostles. We can refer to Acts as the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And both of those titles are not incorrect, but it is more correct to speak about the Acts of Jesus. Right? The book of Acts describes the ongoing work, the ongoing acts of Jesus through his Holy Spirit-empowered followers. You know, in Matthew, in Matthew 16, verse 18, we read about Jesus making his intentions clear. He said, I will build my church. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And acts are the acts of Jesus doing exactly that. The acts of Jesus building his church. You know, our series title is taken from, you know, Acts 1 verse 8. Uh, by the end of the series, you're going to know this off the heart. In fact, in the next couple of weeks, hopefully you will. Right? Uh, verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, our series title is taken from this verse. It is the charge given to the church by Jesus. It is the key to the story. It is the outline of the book of Acts. You know, and the spread of the gospel does indeed follow this trajectory. Now, the gospel starts in Jerusalem, first shared with the Jews, and then it extends to the surrounding countryside, first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. It then leaps to Asia, to Europe, and to Rome. Okay, and the main theme in Luke and Acts is that salvation is for all. And we see that truth playing out. Salvation is for all people, regardless of ethnicity, but salvation is for all people, regardless of where you live in the world. And just to explain, make it obvious, maybe the book is called Acts, right? And that prepares us for the fact that this is an action-packed story. Like all stories, Acts is selective. You know, it covers a period of 30 years, which is easy to forget when we read through it. It does not not describe the mundane, everyday life of the church. What Acts describes are the significant events, the big acts, the highlights that move God's story forward. You know, so Acts is a picture of God on the move. God is actively involved in human history to put right that which is wrong. God is reconciling the world to himself through Jesus, using his spiritful people as his agents of reconciliation. The early church believed it was a part of, that it as a church was part of the story. That the story was leading somewhere. And Luke records the chapter of God's story, the first chapter of God's story, covering the first 30 years in the book of Acts. And Luke ends the book very suddenly and inconclusively. And he does that to invite us into the story. We are now called to play our part in God's grand plan. We get a chance to write our 
chapter in Port Elizabeth at this time. And we do so believing that God's story is moving somewhere and that it's going to end in a good place. Um, Before I continue though, let's pray. Uh, Father God, what a privilege it is as always to come together as your people, God. Thank you for... Thank you for the privilege of singing our praises to you, God. Thank you for the fellowship. Thank you for the family that we are in Christ. Thank you, God, that we are experiencing the fulfillment of your promises that go way back to Genesis, initially to, to Abraham, God, that, that, we are, that we are part of your family of all nations. Father, I pray we never take that for granted. I pray, God, that as we hear your word this morning, that it will open our minds, God that we will understand your scriptures, that we will allow the scriptures to challenge our paradigms and our worldviews, God. I pray also, God, that as we, as we hear your word being spoken, that our hearts will burn, Father, and especially as we speak about witness, that our hearts will burn with zeal to imitate our brothers and sisters in the early church. Father, please be with me. I pray that um, what I say and how I say it will be in a way that pleases you completely. Um, I pray, God, that we will be uh, we will be encouraged, God, and inspired and challenged by the lesson this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. Right. Now, because the gospel is God's thing and God's solution to put things right, we are regularly reminded in the book of Acts that nothing gets in the way of God. And we read, you know, for example, in uh, Acts 8, that in Jerusalem there was a great persecution. The disciples, apart from the apostles, were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And this is almost God pushing the button for the next phase of his growth. You know, but the disciples that were scattered didn't hide away. You know, they didn't hide from the responsibility to share the gospel. They used the opportunity to share the gospel. So persecution, God used persecution to move his story forward. And the greatest persecutor of all was Saul. Uh, This is just taken, uh, extract from his conversion story. Uh, you know, Saul was breathing out murderous threats on the road to Damascus. He encountered Jesus. You know, Jesus said, Saul, you're not persecuting the church, you're persecuting me. Sure. And then Paul, uh, Saul rather, was blinded for a few days. Uh, Jesus, the Holy Spirit sent Ananias to speak to him and lay hands on him and, and heal him. He got his sight back. And then we read that Saul spent several days with the disciples and at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. The most severe persecution does not get in the way of God's God moving his story forward. Not authorities in the world. No, King Herod didn't give praise to God. Uh, God took him out, right? Uh, He was getting in the way of of sharing the the gospel, but the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Not prison doors. Nothing gets in the way of God. Now we read um, about some disciples being in prison, God opened the doors. At once the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. Not prison doors can get in the way of God. Not shipwrecks. You remember that Paul on the way to Rome on a boat, uh, the boat was shipwrecked, ran aground near the, uh, the island of Malta. The ship was breaking up, but God ensured that everybody got to the island safely. Shipwrecks don't get in the way of God. Not even poisonous snakes. Now, when they got on the land, Paul collected some wood together, and as he put it on the fire, a poisonous viper latched onto his hand. Right? But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. Nothing gets in the way of God on the move. Not even time and space. Not God's own physical laws. 
You know, this is the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. The Ethiopian eunuch is, is going back to uh, his country uh, in Africa. He's on the road from Jerusalem. God tells Philip to meet him. Philip hops on the chariot. He finds the Ethiopian reading Isaiah 53. Philip asked him, do you, know, do you understand what you're reading? He said, no, please help me. And then Philip explained that Isaiah 53 was all about the promised Messiah. Right? And, you know, Philip, uh, sorry, the uh, Ethiopian eunuch was, was convicted. Uh, he made Jesus Lord and he said, why not baptize me right here? But look what happened then. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. The eunuch did not see him again. God somehow just snatched Philip out of this chariot and put him on the coast. And if you look at the map, it's a two to three days walk. God obviously decided my story needs to move on quickly. There's some urgency here. So he just took Philip, what do you call a transportation. Just beam me up, Scotty. And Philip just appeared on the, on the coast of the Mediterranean and worked his way slowly up to Caesarea. God was on the move and he was in a hurry. Nothing gets in the way of God on the move. And that's the story we read about in Acts. Come on, come here. You know, but the church in Acts starts with 120 followers. Uh, followers of Jesus, it grew to tens of thousands. We don't know how many in that 30 years. Possibly 100,000. Possibly 200,000. But it grew dramatically. This is unparalleled growth in the church. Now, this explosive growth was led by a motley crew of unschooled, unreliable, self-centered, and fearful men. And you read about that in the Gospels. And on top of that, what did Jesus often say to his disciples? He said, oh, you of little faith. So to top it all, these guys lack faith. Sure. Right? Now, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't have been willing to bet all of my savings on these guys making any difference at all. Would you? What odds would you invest all your savings? Nothing. Now, this was just, this was a non-starter. Now, what was Jesus thinking, you might say? Why select these dudes, right? But something about the apostles obviously changed for them to become world changers. From fearful men of little faith to change the world. What changed? What changed the apostles? And today's lesson will be all about that. Okay, on top of the list, not surprisingly, is the Holy Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit was clearly a reason for their transformation. Going back to John 15, which we've covered a few times during the year, I believe, Jesus is about to leave. He promises his his disciples, he says, it's better that I I go because then the Father's going to send another advocate, the Holy Spirit, who will be my witness, and he's going to enable you to witness as well. And once again, our theme verse pops up, right? Uh, You already know this well. He confirms that, you know, the time is near. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. The Spirit is the Spirit of power. The Spirit is the Spirit of powerful witness for Jesus. And those of us who have the Spirit and do not suppress the Spirit, do not quench the Spirit, we also have the power, the boldness to witness. And a few days later at Pentecost, we see this happening. The tongues of fire came to rest on each of them, referring to the Spirit. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Having all of these Jews from different nations 
having different cultures and languages didn't, didn't get in the way of God. Sure. No, the Holy Spirit enabled the apostles to speak in the languages that the visiting people from outside of Jerusalem could hear and understand. And then another example in, in Acts 4. After they prayed, the place where they meeting was shaken. I pray that our, at our next all-night prayer service, that God shakes my house. Yeah, Wouldn't that on. be awesome? Come on. Now imagine the sort of prayer that they're having. You know, so like, oh, is this an earthquake or not? No, it's God just saying, I'm here, I'm powerful, I hear you. Right? And, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God. They didn't just speak the word of God, they spoke the word of God boldly. That is what the Holy Spirit enabled and empowered the apostles and early disciples to do. And that's what the Holy Spirit wants to do through us. And then we have... Um, one of my most favorite uh, stories, accounts of the Holy Spirit enabling the apostles to overcome their fear. Uh, you know, Peter and John, prior to this, have been preaching in the synagogues. They're so successful that the Jewish leaders aren't happy at all, have them shoved in jail. But then the, um, the group of the most senior Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, invite them in for a discussion. They want to talk to these guys and find out what this is about. Right, and what Peter and John did then? Well, they were asked by the uh, by, by the Jewish leaders, in whose name and by the, whose power are you doing this? Peter uses the opportunity to preach the gospel and to challenge them big time. He basically saying he says to them that we are doing this in the name of Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah, by the way, and who you put to death. And how did they respond when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men? They were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Then they send them out, they confer amongst themselves and then down to verse 18. They called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. This motley crew. Fearful, self-centered, unreliable, pretty much cowards who lack faith. Can you believe the transformation? Speaking so boldly that even the Jewish leaders were amazed at their courage and what they were doing as unschooled men. And their response was, we just can't stop talking. You know, we are so convicted about the gospel centered on Jesus. And we are so filled with His Spirit, we just can't help but speak about this. That's right. Come on. You know, that is what the Holy Spirit does for us, for all followers of Jesus. That is the effect He wants to have in us if we yield to Him. Come on. Um, you know, my prayer for us as a church is that we surrender to the Holy Spirit completely, to be transformed and to be used by Him as He used the Apostles. No, to overcome our fears and our doubt and our lack of courage and to boldly proclaim the gospel in our city. To take up the story where Acts ends. That's my prayer and that should be our prayer church for us as a community. You know, the Holy Spirit was a major reason for the radical transformation of the early disciples. To become people who would turn the world upside down. Or as N.T. Wright puts it, to turn the world right side up, right? God is putting right the things that are, that are wrong. 
But there's a second equally important reason for the radical transformation of the apostles. Um, And this is also found in this verse, in verse 20. We cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. What are they referring to? The resurrection, the resurrected Jesus. The resurrected Jesus, the resurrection is the second reason for the dramatic transformation in the apostles. Right up front, Luke makes it clear that this is that this is going to be a book on the foundation of the resurrected Jesus. He said, in my former book, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. So Luke puts the spotlight immediately on the resurrected Jesus. And throughout the book, we have this mysterious presence of Jesus. You know, we sense that Jesus is there. Now, the resurrected Jesus is throughout the book of Acts. These are, after all, the acts of Jesus. You know, there was convincing proof that Jesus died. The Roman soldiers didn't make mistakes. They had perfected the art of crucifixion. Yes, they they extended the the time on the cross to make it as painful as possible, uh, to make it as humiliating as possible. But nobody came down from a cross, a Roman cross, alive. Uh, There is no doubt that Jesus died on the cross and that his lifeless body was taken from it and his lifeless body was put in the tomb. Now, there are also many convincing proofs that Jesus rose from the dead. There are at least ten episodes recorded in the Gospels of the resurrected Jesus having encounters with his disciples. And think of this, the most convincing proof for us looking back is, if this was a lie, if this summer was a made-up story and the apostles, you know, drugged Jesus with something so he looked dead, yeah, all the crazy theories, he wasn't really dead when he was in the tomb, and then they stole his body, they bribed the Roman soldiers, etc., etc., If that was really the case, if it was a lie, would they have been willing to die for it? Nobody is willing to die for a lie. And each of these apostles, and at some stage we might look at this, but each of the apostles, apart from John, seems to have been preserved by God for long enough and might have died kind of a natural death. All of them died horrific deaths. Crucified, skinned alive, stoned, crucified upside down. Nobody dies for a lie. That, more than anything else, is the greatest proof of the resurrection. The first disciples got the resurrection. They got the Holy Spirit, and they got the resurrection. And it changed everything for them. Now, but what is the transformative power of the resurrection? Why is it when we really get the the, the resurrection that it transforms us? And to answer the question, we must actually go back, we must go to the level of worldviews. Now, a worldview, we all have worldviews. Our worldview decides, it's really the way that we, we see the world. It's the way that we understand what's going on in the world and our place in it. It's, it's the mental lens through which we see everything and try to find our place. And we, the, our worldview helps us to answer the big questions of life. Um, it's like our operating system we function by. It provides the rules by which we play the game of life. And here's the thing, we unintentionally 
filter things out that don't fit our worldview. And also our worldviews are very, very stable things. Worldviews don't change overnight. Now, the resurrected Jesus confronted the disciples at the level of their worldview. He confronted the worldviews of everybody who lived back then, and he confronts our worldviews as we sit here today. The worldview of Jesus is totally different to the the popular worldviews in the world. And if you're a disciple of Jesus, your worldview should have been fundamentally changed. The resurrected Jesus confronts us. He challenges us at the most basic level of worldview. You see, he radically changed the worldviews through his Holy Spirit apostles back in the first century because in that time there was nothing in the worldview of people that was receptive of somebody being bodily raised from the dead. The Greeks believed that when somebody died, you know, their soul separated from their body and drifted off into some ether space and somehow lived happily ever after in this disembodied life. The Greeks believed that the physical body was inherently evil and flawed and therefore, you know, the physical body is like a prison that we just look forward to escaping from. That's not bodily resurrection. Even the Jews, uh, the Jews believed in the general resurrection at the end of time. Their worldview could not accommodate somebody rising from the dead in the middle of time. And especially that somebody being their God. It was just not part of their worldview that their God would take up a human body, be killed, first of all, and then be resurrected. It just wasn't part of their worldview. Nothing in the cultures accommodated such a possibility. And the thing about our worldviews is that they determine everything about us. Our worldview determines how we think about things, what's important for us, what we pursue, what we understand is the meaning of life, how we interact with people, how we think. Our worldviews are powerful. They shape who we are and how we respond to the world. So how does, how does Jesus address people's worldviews? The Bible has a word for it. Anyone got it? It's called repentance. Repentance comes from the Greek word metanoia. Meta means change. Noia means our thinking, our mind. Essentially our worldviews. Repentance is the process that Jesus, that God uses to change our worldviews. Repentance means a a totally new way of thinking about the world. Repentance is not just coming up with a list of sins and getting rid of that one, getting rid of that one, getting rid of that one. Repentance starts at the most basic level of our existence and how we interact with people in the world at our worldviews. That's how the resurrected Jesus challenges us, challenges our worldviews, and changes our worldviews. Now, when we believe that Jesus really died, when we believe that Jesus then really came to life, and that he remains alive, that has implications. Firstly, it tells us that Jesus is the true God, and Jesus is Lord and Savior. He rules over God's good creation. No human being can rise from the dead after three days. Yeah. Only a God can do that. Yeah. So if you accept the, re- the, res- the resurrection, you accept that Jesus is Lord. That's, right. Right? That's the implication. We also accept then that there is life after death. 
Because Jesus is the prototype. Right? That there is life after death for all of us. That then gets us to think about the judgment. There is a judgment. And then finally, if there's life after death, then this life is not, sorry, this life is like a dot on an infinite line. That's the ultimate implication of the, re- the resurrection. Is that this life, you know, James says it's like a mist. But it's like a dot in a line that is infinitely long. And if we really get the, res- the resurrection, we live for the line, not for the dot. Exactly. We live now preparing ourselves for eternity. Yeah. That inherently affects our value system, the way we yeah. live. We live now, to the best of our abilities, empowered by the Spirit, as though we were living in the life to come. Right. come and on. it starts with our worldviews. Jesus challenges our worldviews. That is a main reason why the disciples were transformed. They got the resurrection. You know, there is another implication um, of Jesus shattering our worldviews based on the truth of his resurrection. And this is an extract from uh, the account. Jesus meets his two disciples, the resurrected Jesus. They're walking on the road to Emmaus. They're chattering amongst themselves. They're very confused about what's happened. You know, they, Jesus seems to have died. You know, the, some sisters went to the tomb. It was empty. But what does that mean? So they're having this discussion, and then Jesus asks them what they're speaking about. They explain this all to Jesus. They said, we're so disappointed. Jesus was a great prophet. We thought he was the Messiah, but he died. And then Jesus says, then how foolish you are. How slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. That's to verse 27. Then, fast-forwarding here a little bit, uh, the post, these, these disciples say to Jesus, it's getting late now, we don't want you walking alone, it was pretty dangerous walking on these paths, you know, in the rural areas outside Jerusalem. So they say, come and, come and stay over with us tonight. So they have, a, they have a meal together, and then Jesus gives them this revelation. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sights. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Okay, what we see here is that when, when we encounter the resurrected Jesus... Our hearts burn. There is a burning zeal to do something. And what these guys did, remember it was night, it was dangerous to walk around at night. By now I'm sure the sun has set, it's late. They immediately got up and they walked to Jerusalem. There isn't time to wait till the morning. There isn't time for the safety of sunlight. It's urgent. And if we really get the resurrected Jesus and and we allow him to fundamentally change our worldviews, Understanding why we are, what this life is about. We should have this burning desire to tell people. The worldview of the apostles was completely disrupted by Jesus. The new emerging worldview with, you know, the resurrected Jesus at the center drove them to preach the gospel boldly. The resurrection established that God is involved in the world, putting right all the things that are wrong. 
and that he's using and that he's using Jesus, our Lord and Savior, to do that. When we get the transformative power of the resurrection, when we really get the resurrection, we can't help but share the good news. Yeah. And the resurrection of Jesus, I'll remind you, is at the center of, of the gospel. The gospel should fundamentally change our worldview. The gospel should fundamentally change people's worldview. It is radically disruptive to our way of thinking and our, our lifestyles. And here's the thing, the gospel, if, if you think about it, is offensive. People in the world are offended by the gospel. And they should be because the gospel pushes people off the throne of their lives and puts Jesus there. Right. And nobody wants to be pushed off their throne. We like to live for ourselves, don't we? I'm in charge, thank you very much. I'll decide what's important. I'll pursue my happiness. I'll pursue my career. purpose of life is just to be happy. You know, that worldview comes from us sitting on the throne of our lives. The resurrection, if we really get it, puts Jesus there. And we get to the point when we really get the resurrection, when we really get the gospel, we, like Paul, will say, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. When we get the resurrection, it changes everything, starting with our worldview. There is a third reason behind this dramatic transformation of the apostles. I'm going to show a short video to lead us into that. Maybe someone can turn the lights off there. It's called Dead Come Alive and it is an animation put to a song.
That video is from a ministry, a website called Full of Eyes. I don't know if you were able to follow all the, follow all the words there, but there was, you know, a rap section of the song. Do you get that? I promise I'm not gonna be a rapper this morning. I'm not gonna, I am not, I am not going to rap it right there. The story is banging against my head and against these walls. Won't be cancelled, won't be cancelled. The words are. He says, The story is banging against my throat and against these walls. It can't be contained. No, it won't stay in here. It will thrive. Listen to this. Because stories just don't die when the dead come alive. Stories don't die when the dead come alive. And this leads me to my, my third and last point. The early disciples were transformed from fearful men of little faith to world changers because they got the Holy Spirit, they got the resurrection, and they got the story. They got the story, and they understood their place in it. Um, so, you know, in Luke 24, this is where Jesus now is with the, the disciples. Um, they doubted whether it was him. He, he, he meets up with the eleven disciples and the two other disciples from the road who he met on the road to Emmaus. He just he just appears there in his resurrection body. Uh, they're not too sure it's him. He says, "Touch touch my hands, see my scars," and he has a, a little a short simple meal with them to really show that this is a physical body. And this is what he said to them: "This is what I've told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms." Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. 
He told them, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance, worldview change, for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. And these final words of, of Jesus are summarized in Acts 1 verse 8, right? That's, that is the, this is the event that Jesus is referring to in, uh, in the introduction of Acts. Now the point here is that Jesus opened their minds. How did he do that? He explained what was going on in the context of God's story. And he showed them that all the scriptures were actually about him. They, they understood it. They got it. They understood that the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus wasn't a random, isolated event. It was a planned, it, 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 it was an important, it was a critically important part. It was the climax of God's story. And when we get this, church, when we really understand God's story, uh, the, the place of Jesus in that story, and more importantly, our place in that story, we respond with effective witness. Stories are powerful. And we read that they, you know, their minds were opened. And as we get into the book of Acts, you will see that their witness, how they shared the gospel, was modeled on what Jesus did here. They always started with the Old Testament, whether they were speaking to the Jews or to the Gentiles. A lot of referencing of the Old Testament and, and proving and showing that Jesus was the fulfillment of this of the scriptures. That, and this is what God always planned. This was always written into God's story. And then he invites people into, they, they invite people, uh, into, into the story. Whether they preach to the Jews or the Gentiles, they always quoted from the Old Testament. They also used scriptures to show that what was happening through the church at the time was also the ongoing playing out of God's story. It was the ongoing fulfillment of God's promises. God's story was continuing. They, they would argue, and everyone was invited to be a part of it through repentance and baptism. Now, but we also see in Acts, the apostles not only proclaiming the gospel, not only proclaiming the gospel in the context of God's ongoing story, but telling their own stories. Now, Paul told his gripping conversion story a number of times, probably a lot more than was actually recorded, right? Because remember, these are just the highlights. Acts is like the highlight package, right? So Paul probably continually shared his story. Stories are powerful. Other apostles also spoke about how they had encountered the resurrected Jesus. And Luke himself was an amazing storyteller. Acts is a gripping, amazing story. Stories are powerful. People relate to stories. Stories go beyond simply relaying facts. Stories emotionalize information. They give color, they give depth to what would otherwise be bland material. And stories allow us to connect with the message in a deeper, more meaningful way. Now, N.T. Wright's commentary on this passage, the, the broader uh, Luke 24 passage, um, I just want to share it with you. Luke has, of course, told the story in such a way to help us live in it. We too are invited to listen to the exposition of the Bible, to have our hearts burning within us as fresh truth comes out of the old pages 
and sets us on fire. Luke emphasizes what the church can too easily forget, that the careful study of the Bible is meant to bring together head and heart, understanding and excited application. This will happen as we learn to think through the story of God and the world of Israel and Jesus, not in the way that our cultures and our world views try to make us see it, but in the way that God himself has sketched it out. Stories are powerful. God has, God has created us to be storytellers. God has created us to like stories, to see ourselves in stories. And the most powerful witness is when we are able to tell God's story, not in theological terms, we don't have to be theologians to be able to tell God's story, but in our own words to explain to people what God is busy with, how he's putting, putting right the things that are wrong. And the central role of Jesus, you know, died and resurrected and ascended, the central role of Jesus in that story. And then effective witness also shares our story. And we read this passage in 1 John from verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. Right there, there's a pattern for our witness. We don't physically see Jesus. We haven't physically touched him. But we, if you are a disciple of Jesus, if you have repented and taken up the life of Christ, you have experienced Jesus. And I think as Christians, sometimes we can underestimate that. We kind of forget how our lives have changed. We, we, We forget about how powerfully... Jesus has worked in us and through us through his spirit. And successful witness church involves sharing our stories, like the apostles did, and how our story fits into God's ongoing story, and how the story is going to end in a good place. Now, so just to summarize, the apostles were this motley crew of unreliable, self-centered, fearful men who lacked faith. But they were transformed into world changers by getting the Holy Spirit, by getting the resurrection, and by getting the story. How can we be more effective in, in our witness? Let's get the Holy Spirit. Let's just not get the Holy Spirit, but yield to the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Let's, get to the, let's get the resurrection to the point that if any of our old worldviews are still hanging around, that we allow Jesus to challenge those worldviews and to enable us to change ourselves at the most fundamental level of worldview. And thirdly, we too, we too can be transformed into world changers by getting the story and our place in it. Get the spirit, get the resurrection, get the story, change the world. Amen. Thank you, Church.